Welcome to this verse-by-verse Bible teaching from Calvary Queen Creek in Arizona with Assistant Pastor Darrell Logan. We hope you're blessed by listening. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. For more information, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org. Genesis 17. If you want to turn there, or click or swipe there, whatever you're doing. But let's uh, go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for this opportunity and this blessing of being able to gather together uh, to worship you as we study your word. And Father, we pray for a timely word. We pray that you help us to apply your word to our lives, that you'll equip us for your work uh, this upcoming week. Now, I do pray for the gift of teaching, for help in rightly dividing your word of truth. Now, pray for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit. And at this time, Father, I ask that you help me to decrease while you increase and you be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 17. Uh, The title of the study is, It's a Heart Issue. It's a Heart Issue. So, in chapter 16 of the book of Genesis, uh, we saw the mess that was created by Sarai and Abram as they followed through on Sarai's suggestion for Abram to take Hagar, her maidservant, as a secondary wife so that he can have relations with her and then, of course, um, have a child with her. And that plan came about because Sarai was not able to get pregnant at that time. And so after Hagar got pregnant by Abram, it brought about some drama uh, between Abram and Sarai. But it also brought drama between Hagar and Sarai. And then in that study in chapter 16, we saw the angel of the Lord appear. And we believe that the angel of the Lord was a Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ And so he came into the picture after Hagar, the maidservant, ran away. She was pregnant at the time. She ran away from Sarai, um, you know, her her master, so to speak, because Sarai treated her harshly. All because Hagar now looked down on Sarai. And so they weren't meshing too well, wasn't going too well. And so the angel of the Lord uh, gave Hagar some assurance in regard to the baby that she was carrying within her womb. And so the baby's name, of course, would be Ishmael and the angel of the Lord. Not only did he give her assurance about Ishmael, but uh, the angel of the Lord told her about Ishmael's future. And so we see all of that in Genesis chapter 16. But he also told her, he instructed her to go back to Sarai and submit to her authority. And so by the time we get to the end of Genesis 16, we see that Hagar gave birth to Ishmael. And we see at that point uh, that Abram was uh, 86 years old. And so we look at Genesis chapter 17, and we're going to continue to watch this story unfold. So verse 1 of Genesis 17 says, When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram. So this was probably a theophany or Christophany. And and he said to Abram, 
I am Almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant or my agreement between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. And so this chapter, if you're keeping up with everything, it occurs 13 years after chapter 16. And so uh, just as a refresher, Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. And so that was back in Genesis chapter 12. But then he was 86 years old at the end of Genesis 16 when his son Ishmael was born to Hagar, the servant girl. And so now he's 99 years old. And so something interesting that we see uh, in this uh, chapter, in these uh, first couple of verses, is that we see that this is the first time Almighty is used of God. And it means that God is most powerful. And so Almighty God is the English translation of the Hebrew El Shaddai. But, of course, there's some debate as to what exactly El Shaddai means. And so they figured out that El is the name of God that speaks of power, but scholars or Bible teachers do not agree on what Shaddai means. And so in combining all of these ideas of what Shaddai means, um, some say that um, it, it can carry The idea that God is an all-sufficient one, that God gives life, that he nurtures, and that he pours out his blessings. So some believe that if you wrap up all of these ideas, that, that all of that is contained in that name, El Shaddai, Almighty God. And so this is something that we need to remember when we're in our uh challenges, when we're in our tough circumstances, when we're experiencing uh, spiritual warfare, we need to remember that God is El Shaddai, that, that, that he is almighty God, that he is the one who is the all-sufficient one. Anything we need is in him, that he is the life giver. We need to remember that he is the one who nurtures us. He takes care of us takes care of us. He blesses us. And so this is El Shaddai, the almighty God. And so uh, we would, it would benefit us if we were to remember that as we go through our trials in life. And so what we see here as well in verse one is that God is going to fulfill his promise to Abram. And I know this has been a theme, but, but God has to remind him that he's going to fulfill his promises to him. God is going to keep his end of the agreement or covenant that he has made with Abram. And remember that this covenant, this agreement or contract is an unconditional covenant. But as the man of God, Abram or Abraham would need to be obedient to the Lord in order to enjoy the full benefits of this covenant. And so, by the way, these are not conditions of the covenant for Abraham or, or, you know, that, oh, if he doesn't fulfill this, then then God is not going to be faithful to keep his word to him. So that's not what's going on here. But these are simply commands that God is giving to Abram. 
And so first of all, God commanded Abram to live, in other words, uh, in constant awareness that God is always present. And so that's what he means by walk before me. When he told Abram to walk before him, he, he meant that you need to live in uh, constant awareness that, that I'm present. And then he tells him to be blameless. That word blameless means to, it means complete. It means whole, entire, sound, or upright. Or it could simply mean be innocent. So in other words, if, he, if he's blameless, that means he's doing what is right. Uh, but I wonder if, what would happen if we were to take heed or obey the, these commands that God had given to Abram in these first two verses? What, what would happen if we were to take heed to this? If we were to always live as if we always knew that God is present because he is present. We just sometimes don't always sense his presence, but he is always present. But, but what would happen if we were to live that way, that God is always watching me, his eyes are upon me? And what if we would live blamelessly? In other words, people cannot look, look at our lives and say, hey, they're, doing, they're living a crazy life. They're, they're living in this, in this sin. And they could say that, but, but would they be wrong? And if they're wrong about that, then, then you're living blamelessly. You're, you're living an upright life. So if we were to take heed to what God had commanded Abram, I just wonder how, many, how much more of God's blessings will we enjoy or how much better of a witness we would be in this world or, or maybe how effective we would be in the work of the ministry if we were to be blameless, if we were to live at all times as if we knew that God were present. In verses 3 through 8, Genesis 17, it says, Then Abram fell on his face. So he fell on his face in worship. He gave respect to the Lord, and, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant, my agreement is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram or exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. For I have made you a father of many nations. And he says in verse six, I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting or permanent covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. So you are a wanderer or a foreigner in this land right now, this land of Canaan. But he promised to give this land to Abram or Abraham as well as his offspring or his descendants. And it will be an everlasting or permanent possession of theirs. And it says that I will be their God. And so one thing to note about Abraham is that he was the forefather of not only the Israelites, but also the Ishmaelites, the Edomites, and the Midianites. 
And so Esau, by the way, is Jacob's twin. And so Jacob hasn't been born yet. He is Abraham's or will be Abraham's uh, grandson. And, and so that's Jacob. His name was changed to Israel. And so his twin brother is Esau. And so Esau was the forefather of the Edomites. And then Abraham would have a son by the name of Midian. And this will be one of his sons with his new wife, Keturah. And so he's going to marry Keturah after Sarah dies. And so Midian, this son, he would be the forefather of the Midianites. And so in other words, Abraham's descendants would also consist of the Arabians. And so you have the Israelites and you have the Arabs who are descendants of Abraham. And you can see all of this in Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 4. And so literally, this covenant has come to pass in that regard because Abraham literally is the father of many nations. But that's according to um, DNA, according to blood. But spiritually, he is also the father of many nations. Because all who share the same faith as Abraham, because Abraham trusted in the true and the living God of the Bible. And so those of us who trust in the same God that Abraham put his trust in, which is the God of the Bible, then guess what? We are also related to Abraham. The scriptures tell us that we are Abraham's sons. We are his children. That is by faith. Therefore, spiritually, Abraham is the father of all believers, and all believers come from different ethnic groups, different people groups, different nations, and so literally and spiritually, he is the father of all nations. And so if you want to be, first of all, a child of God, if you also want to be one of the many children of Abraham, the father of faith, then you would need to repent and put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. And you can look at a scripture here if you want to jot it down. It's Galatians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. So you know I'm not making this up, that, that we are the spiritual children of Abraham through our trust in Jesus for salvation. But something else to note as we looked at verses 3 through 8, is that God, once again, talks about how he's going to give this land Canaan, which we call the promised land, as an everlasting or permanent possession to the children of Israel, to Abraham and the children of Israel. See, we need to know the scriptures because there are people in this world who are trying to play politics with the nation of Israel. They're trying to play politics with the land. But God has the final say. God gave them that land that they're in as an everlasting possession. In fact, if you look at the real borders, it's supposed to be even larger than that, which they will inherit 
Of course, during the millennial kingdom, that is the 1000 reign of Christ, when he is literally reigning on this earth from his headquarters in Jerusalem. And so, of course, that is yet future where where they're going to enjoy the totality of the possession that he promised to them. But right now they are in the land. And so, like I said, there's people who are trying to get them to divide it or whatever the case is. But God has the final say and he has given it to them as an everlasting or permanent possession. And so we need to know the word of God, what God says about every topic. We need to go to the Bible, the scriptures, the the only God-breathed document that we have here in order uh, to find out about true doctrine, unless you're going to find yourself supporting things that are not biblical. Even when it comes to the children of Israel and the land. Now, granted, many of them are in the land in unbelief. But one day, at the end of that tribulation period, are they going to be happy to see Jesus and receive him as their Messiah? That's the Bible. That's what the scriptures say. And so I'm I'm going to put this out there. It's not in the notes. I didn't plan on saying this, but we do not believe here in replacement theology. The church does not, did not replace Israel. The nation of Israel is Israel. The church is the church. However, people who are Jews by blood, they can become a part of the church through trust in Jesus. And so even now you have some Jewish people by blood who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, along with Gentiles. Amen. So that we have that now, but we need to keep uh, the, the category separate. So the nation of Israel is the nation of Israel. The church is the church. And for people who believe in this replacement theology that the church replaced Israel, I'm going to tell you this. They're going to have a problem reading Romans chapters 9 through 11. Because when you read Romans chapters 9 through 11, you see Israel's past, you see their present, and then you see their future. And so they're going to have a hard time explaining that, or they're going to have to do spiritual gymnastics. And so just wanted to throw that out there, that that we need to keep things biblical. And it's really not that hard because the scriptures detail it. But if people are willing to submit to the word and to the authority of God, things begin to fall in place a little more nicely than it would than if you were to uh, try to go with man's philosophy. And so I'm going to continue in, in verses 9 through 14. I'll leave that there. But in verses 9 through 14 in, in Genesis 17, It says, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep or obey my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This, my covenant or the sign of my covenant or or agreement, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. In verse 10, he says, every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign or symbol of the covenant between me and you. Verse 12, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who was born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendants. 
He who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money must be circumcised. And the sign of my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Or in other words, your bodies will be marked to show that you are a part of my agreement. That's pretty much what he's saying. Verse 14. And the uncircumcised male child who was not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people or from his covenant family. So in other words, uh, that person, uh, that, that, that male child who is um, not circumcised, um, they'll be put away from the congregation of Israel. And so this, this penalty normally meant that he will be exiled from Israel and from any inheritance in Israel because uh, God says he, he has broken my covenant or agreement. So in other words, a person, um, uh, according to what it says here, was not circumcised out of covenant with God. And so this is uh, the covenant that, that God made with him, with Abraham and his descendants. And so Abraham and the males in his household and, and all the future Israelites, they, they needed to be circumcised in their flesh. And so, of course, this would have included those 318 trained servants that, that Abraham took with him when he went to rescue Lot. And so when we talk about circumcision, we need to define it. I won't, we're not going to put anything on the, on the, on the screen there. But, but circumcision is the surgical removal of the skin covering the tip of the male private part. And so, in other words, circumcised means cutting around. And by the way, this was not a practice that only the Jews did, only the Israelites did. It was a procedure that was practiced among various people groups during that time. But God gave it new meaning between him, Abraham, and his descendants. And by the way, this, this circumcision, this um, this practice here, it would, it, it would serve as a sign of their covenant relationship with the Lord. That, hey, I'm in an agreement with the Lord. He, he is the God of the Bible is my God. And, and so, you know, it, it was their trust. They're trusting in him. And, and I, you know, many people may wonder why that part of the body. And, and maybe God wanted that part of the male body to bear the sign of the covenant because this covenant dealt with the seed of Abraham. It dealt with the seed, the, the, the Jews. So, of course, it would deal with the male body part in, in this instance. So that could be a reason why God wanted that part to be dealt with in this situation. But, but this was supposed to take place when the male child is eight days old. Eight days old. And so and, and setting it at eight days old, we can see the wisdom of God. And we always say this. We always say that science is catching up to the Bible. And so the Bible is not a science book per se. But when it says something about science, the Bible is accurate. And so in an article entitled Circumcision, why the eighth day, it says, according to the website Evidence for the Bible, the human body has two blood clotting elements. One of them is called vitamin K. 
Vitamin K is not formed in the body up until the fifth to the seventh day. Now, the second clotting factor, which is essential, is called prothrombin. It surprisingly enough develops to 30% of normal by the third day of life. And after that, it peaks at 110% on the eighth day, just before leveling off at 100% normal. And so it continues, if vitamin K is not present when a baby boy is circumcised, the baby will bleed to death. So the reason why Yahweh established day eight for circumcision is that vitamin K peaks in a newborn at eight days of age. And so the eighth day is the optimum day for circumcision because of the highest presence of the clotting factor vitamin K. But today, when baby boys are circumcised within a couple of days of birth, they are administered vitamin K to help with blood clotting. And so this shows the wisdom of God. So every detail of the Bible is in the Bible, in this collection of inspired scriptures by the Lord for a reason. And so God is so wise. The Bible is so accurate. And we need to appreciate what we have in front of us. We need to stand firm upon the word of God. There is nothing to be ashamed of when people claim that it is outdated. We know that it's a lie because it's a timeless word. It's an everlasting word. And it's an everlasting word because it has come from an everlasting or eternal God. God is so good. His word is so good. And our God, once again, is so wise. So a tip for you that if you want some wisdom, open up the word of God. Amen. Amen. Verses 15 through 16. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, meaning my princess or meaning princess in her native dialect. But call her Sarah. So Sarai is now Sarah. And this is, it also means princess. But this princess here, um, according to one uh, Bible translation or version, has a capital P. And so it also means princess. But it's in a dialect of Canaan, signifying her transition to the promised land. And so no longer Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. And he says, and I will bless her and also give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And so God in this study in Genesis chapter 17, he changed both Abram's and Sarai's name in this chapter to Abraham and Sarah respectively. And so these, these names, by the way, they say something about who they are because Abraham is now called father of a multitude. And Sarah now means, of course, princess here with the capital P. And one Bible scholar, one Bible teacher, uh, David Guzik, he, he quotes somebody by the name of Matthew Poole in his commentary. And he says that Sarai signifies my lady or my princess, which confines her dominion to one family. But Sarah 
On the other hand, it signifies either a lady or princess simply and absolutely without restriction or the princess of a multitude. So interesting when we see these name changes, and and these are not the last name changes we're going to see in the scriptures. In fact, there is a name change concerning us because, first of all, spiritually speaking, we receive a new identity in Christ. And, And so we have this identity, first of all, under Adam. Under Adam, we have the sin nature. We are sinners in need of a Savior, but now after repenting, and putting our trust in Jesus for salvation. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 17, that, that in Christ we are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so in Christ, we have this new name, so to speak. And so we have gone from sinners, and now we're saints. And so we have gone from not being a people to now we are a people. And so we are now a part of a royal priesthood. And all these things, we are all of that in Christ. And so in him, our identity has changed. And so whatever you are in Christ, if you're linked up with Christ, that is your new identity. And I don't know who I'm saying this for or or maybe who agrees with this statement, but there's this saying of, of, of this gay Christian. I'm calling myself a gay Christian. Well, there is no such thing because either you're gay or you're Christian. If you're truly saved, then that is your your new identity. You are a child of God. Uh, you are a Christian. Nobody who used to live a life of murder calls themselves a murdering Christian. Nobody who used to be a thief calls themselves, I'm a thieving Christian. Nobody who used to live a life of lying calls themselves a lying Christian. You see, in Christ, our identity is changed, and we should not be ashamed of that to be linked up with our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So people need to stop lying to themselves or allowing the enemy to lie to them because it's robbing you of who God wants you to be, of reaching your full potential in Christ. But get this, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, Jesus even suggests that a name change is going to take place for the overcomers, speaking to believers. And so the name change process Uh, doesn't end here in this chapter with Sarai and Abram. You see, God made it a point here to include, to include the fact that he's going to have a child with his wife, Sarah. You're going to have a child with her. Don't, don't worry about getting any other women involved. You already messed up with Hagar. That's enough. So you're going to have a child with Sarah. So you're not just going to have a great nation come from you. You're not just going to have this innumerable uh, uh, number of of offspring. This child is not just going to come from your body, but it's going to be with your wife, Sarah, princess. Verses 17, 18. Then Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. He said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who was 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you or be or I wish he were acceptable to you. Now, some people see this as see this laugh as a laugh of unbelief. 
But, but Abraham laughed as he imagined people as old as they were having a child. And so in other words, Abraham's laughter, and we'll see in the scriptures, Abraham's laughter was not a laughter of doubt, but it was a laughter of surprise. It was a laughter of joyful wonder because according to man, it was almost impossible, uh, you know, according, you know, for him to, to have a, a child at his age, as well as his wife who would be 90 at that point. And so by the way, for, for those of you who want to you know, see if this was a laugh of doubt or not. You can even look in Genesis chapter 18, uh, verse 13, because Sarah's laugh was a laugh of doubt and she was rebuked for it. But Abraham was not rebuked here for his laugh. And it's because it, it was a, it was a laughter of surprise. It was a laughter of joyful wonder. And one scripture we want to turn to in the New Testament now is Romans chapter four, verses 16 through 22. Romans chapter 4 verses 16 through 22 it says therefore it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed not only to those who are of the law but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham who is the father of us all. You see, if we had to work, if we had to keep the law in order to earn the promises, we would fail every time. But, but because it's given the, um, the blessings are given by promise, it's a faith. Because it's a faith, grace is involved. And so the promises are sure to those who trust in Christ. And so in verse 17, as it is written, I made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and caused those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed. So against hope, Abraham believed so that he became the father of many nations. According to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be and not being weak in faith. He did not consider his own body already dead since he was about a hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was also able to perform. And therefore it was accounted to uh, Abraham for for righteousness. In other words, he was justified or has a right standing in the sight of God because he believed God. So it says he did not waver at the promise. Also, the, the Lord didn't rebuke him like he would rebuke Sarah in chapter 18. And so that's why most or many Bible teachers um, say that this laughter was one of surprise and joyful wonder. And so we look through the scriptures to piece things together. And so he still didn't know how this would all work out. Didn't mean that he didn't believe, but didn't know how it would all play out. So he would then suggest that Ishmael be the one that God would accept because he just couldn't grasp how it would work. He, I mean, he laughed, a joyful wonder and everything, but, but still, well, maybe if you, you know, Take Ishmael, maybe make it, he, he can fulfill some things. This covenant can continue through him. But in verses 19 through 22, then God said, God is so gracious. He says, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac. 
He says, I will establish my covenant, my agreement with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes or tribal leaders, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac. He's the son of promise. Whom Sarah shall bear to you at this set time next year. Then he finished talking with him and God went up. He ascended or withdrew from Abraham. And so if you look in Genesis chapter 25 verses 12 through 16, we can see that God kept his word in regard to Ishmael because we see that 12 princes would indeed come from him, would come from Ishmael. And again, that's Genesis 25 verses 12 through 16. But here in these verses, in verses 19 through 22, which we've just read, we see that Isaac is mentioned by name for the first time in the Bible. And Isaac's name means laughter or he laughs. And so this name takes us back, of course, to Abraham laughing in joy and surprise, you know, at at the mention of, of him having a child at 100 years old and Sarah having a child at 90. And so this covenant, the scriptures tell us, will also be linked to Isaac, his future son, and not Ishmael. And interestingly enough, the Muslims trace their lineage back to Ishmael. And Ishmael is not the son of promise, but but the Jews trace their lineage, of course, to Isaac, meaning laughter, for he is the son of promise. And And it's biblical. However, in God's grace, we see that Ishmael will be blessed. But of course, the covenant will not be established with him. Now, another thing to see here, verse 22, is that God's manifest presence had ascended from Abraham after he spoke with him. And what I like about this is that it shows that God talked to Abraham as one would talk to his friend. And so therefore, in the scriptures, it says that Abraham is called the friend of God. In James chapter 2, verse 23, for example, and there's also a couple of other scriptures, but it says, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. A quote, of course, from Genesis 15, 6. And he was called the friend of God. Abraham was called the friend of God. God spoke with him as he would talk to a friend. Then he left, of course, his manifest presence left. But the thing about this is, is that Abraham is not the only one who could be called a friend of God because we too, as believers, and if you're a believer in Christ, you are on friendly terms with God right now. Yes, he's our spiritual father, but he's also our friend. This this is, of course, through faith in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. And so when we repent and we put our trust in Jesus, we're we're saying that we surrender. We we don't want to be at odds with you anymore, God. We surrender. We receive Jesus. We no longer are fighting against God. When we receive Christ, 
But, but I do need to pose the question to some. Uh, are you still warring against God? Are you still at odds with God? Because God, of course, would rather be your friend. Because Jesus, he, he took our place on that cross. And he, and he shed his blood on that cross. And that blood being shed is, is a picture of his life being poured out from him. And that happens so that we won't have to die. We won't have to be eternally separated from God. And so through Christ, through faith in him, we wave our surrender flags. And now we're on friendly terms with him. And that is such a blessing to have a right standing with the God of the universe. All because Jesus took our place and he dealt with the sin issue. And so we can choose, do we, do we want to be on friendly terms with the Lord or do we want to be friends with the world? Both of them can't be true. Verses 23 to 27, it says, so Abraham took Ishmael, his son, all who were born in this house and all who were bought with this money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, as God had said to him, Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. He's a brave man. Verse 25, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very... (laughs) Wow, I know Ishmael was mad. Verse 26, that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and his son Ishmael and all the men of his house born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. And of course, it was, was, was a sign of God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. And so what we see here is immediate obedience. And because of this immediate obedience of Abraham, we see his faith. And so by his works, we can see his faith. He doesn't have to tell us he has faith in God. He did it through his obedience, and it was immediate. Check out what it says in Psalm 119, verse 60. It says, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. See, when we find out what God wants us to do, may we be like Abraham and be immediate in our obedience. May we not delay to be obedient to what the Lord has called us to do. But let's be like Abraham. Lord, what would you have us to do? And we can see that in the scriptures. And as the Lord shows us some things, let's be quick about it. Let's make haste about it and being obedient to him. And of course, this immediate obedience of carrying out the command to be circumcised, we see it as a good thing. We see this as a good thing for Abraham and his household, even Ishmael, because again, it was a visible sign of the covenant that they have with the Lord. However, the circumcision that matters more to the Lord is the circumcision of the heart. See, Deuteronomy 10, 16 says, therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff necked no longer. 
Jeremiah chapter 4 verse 4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins, once again, of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest the fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Let's go to the New Testament. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, or not by the written law. And it says, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And so, yes, it was a good thing when we see this immediate obedience being carried out by Abraham and those men, those males in his household. But the Lord was really after the heart. And so when we look at Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, these verses are talking about what makes a Jew a real Jew, because many of them relied on external factors. They, they relied on rituals. They relied on the law. They relied on the circumcision in the flesh as far as the males are concerned. They relied on those things as a basis for their relationship with God for salvation. But the Lord says, no circumcision is of the heart. That's what's matter. That's what makes a Jew a real person of God, a real child of God, if they're circumcised inwardly. And, and what's, what's cool about this verse in verse 29, where it says, whose praise is not from men, but from God, speaking of the real Jew who's been circumcised inwardly, what's interesting about that is the word Jew comes from the word Judah, and Judah means praise. And so there was a play on words here where it says the the real Jew is whose praise doesn't come from men because you're trying to keep the law outwardly. You're only worried about the outward circumcision to have a relationship with God. But no, the true praise that you should seek after comes from God. And when your heart is circumcised, when you receive that inward circumcision, you're living for God, you have a true relationship with God, then your praise will come from him. But when we, need, when we talk about the heart circumcision, we need to talk a little bit about the heart because the word heart is often used as such things as personality and the intellect and memory and emotions and the desires, also the will. So in other words, the heart is the core of our being. The heart is the core of who we are, the core of our being. And so we all need this heart circumcision. That's what the Lord is looking for. And so there are some truths of this heart circumcision. First of all, a heart circumcision is necessary. It's necessary. Why is it necessary? Because Jeremiah 17, 9 tells us that the heart, the core of who we are, is deceitful above all things. It's desperately wicked or incurable. Who can know it? Who can understand it? And then in Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus, who was God, he understands the heart. 
He understands the problem of the heart because he said it is from the heart, from the core of our being, proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness or lying and blasphemies, or we can call it slander. And so there, that's one truth about the, the, uh, about the heart circumcision is that it's necessary. But second of all, heart uh, circumcision is spiritual. In other words, it does not deal with the physical heart, but it deals with the immaterial heart, the core of who you are, the core of our being. But also when we talk about heart circumcision, and so this is a third truth about it, is that the fleshly part of our heart is cut away. So just like physically on that male organ, how that uh, flesh is cut away, well, in our immaterial heart, that fleshly part is cut away. In other words, the heart that is dominated by the sin nature is removed. But another truth about Heart circumcision is that it is performed by the spirit of God. And so uh, when we also talk about heart circumcision, we also talk about the fact that it reflects an inward dedication to God. And so God didn't only want the Jews to have this outward circumcision, but he wanted them to have this inward dedication to him. And so Whereas this circumcision in the flesh was to serve as an outward reflection of this inward dedication. That's what's supposed to happen there. But some were only getting circumcised on the outside, but leaving the inside, the inner man uncircumcised. But another truth about this heart circumcision is that just as removing the male foreskin helped to prevent certain diseases, The circumcision of the heart will be a symbol of purity spiritually. It was also a cure against stubbornness or against them being stiff-necked. The circumcision of the heart is also uh, something that allows people to be sensitive to the things of God instead of resisting God or going against the Holy Spirit. But, but in the scriptures, as you read Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, we also see that the circumcision of the heart also allows one to love the Lord. Because in Deuteronomy 36, it says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. But it also allows us to worship God in the spirit. There's, there's many truths that take place when, when there's this heart circumcision, because not only does it allow us to worship God in the spirit, but it allows us to rejoice in or boast in Christ instead of in our flesh. And so circumcision, spiritual circumcision is a picture of those who do not put confidence in the flesh. Like it tells us in Philippians 3, 3, it says, for we are the circumcision, every believer in Jesus, we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, who rejoice or boast in Christ Jesus. And we have no confidence in the flesh, in our human endeavors. You see, believers, by the way, we are circumcised spiritually in a positional way as we identify with Christ Jesus. Here's another scripture for you. Colossians chapter 2, 
verses 11 and 12. It says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And so this spiritual circumcision took place when we put our trust in Jesus for salvation. But from that point, although we're positionally uh, circumcised in Christ, this flesh cut away, the, this power of the flesh cut away, practically, as we go through uh, the sanctification process, we need to practically put away the sinful deeds of the flesh, according to Colossians 3, 5. And so for the believer, there's no need for a physical circumcision. For the believer, we have what's called water baptism. And so the water baptism for us, it identifies us with Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. It is the only outward ritual that, that believers do after salvation, or if you want to call it spiritual circumcision. And so I would encourage you to, to evaluate where you are. Evaluate where you are. You, is your heart truly circumcised? Maybe you're claiming to be a Christian, but you're not sensitive to the things of the Lord. You may claim to be a Christian, but you don't love the Lord. Or you may rely on your human efforts to try to get you into heaven. Or maybe the pattern of your thoughts, the pattern of your words or actions are sinful. So maybe you're not circumcised as you thought spiritually. See, the scriptures are clear that it's the circumcision of the heart, not the flesh, that is more important to God. You see, the heart that is on the same page as God is, is better than a bunch of works. It's better than sacrifices, gifts, and good works. See, these things might look good on the outside, but what is the condition of your heart? And it's, it is something for, for all of us to, to examine within ourselves. As the worship team takes, takes the stage, we, we need to recognize that we can't change people as believers because as believers, uh, some of this maybe didn't apply to you because you know that you've been spiritually circumcised. Your heart has been circumcised. But then we may be looking at the, the way things are going in the world and people in the world, thinking that we can change them through whatever other means, but we need to recognize that we can't change people, that, that they need this heart surgery, that they need the circumcision of the heart. And the surgeon, of course, is the Holy Spirit. And surgery, of course, is not fun. I've been through surgery myself. I was about what, 15, 16, broke my jaw, playing a silly fainting game, fell on my face. Now I have to get metal in my face. So metal face, Pastor Durrell, that's me. So I had to get surgery. It's not fun, but, but, but it's helpful. And so here, the, the surgeon is the Holy Spirit. He, he needs to circumcise the hearts of the people. But we need to first bring the message of the good news to people. Because arguing won't change people. Talking a good game won't, won't, won't save people, won't change their hearts. Or having social media conflict won't change people. Or behavior modification in unbelievers won't bring about true change. But they need some surgery by the Holy Spirit. They need this heart surgery, this, this surgery that's going to circumcise their hearts. And so we need to share the gospel. 
We need to share something that the apostle Paul isn't ashamed of. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. And so when people receive this message that we ought not to be ashamed of, what happens is that a new birth takes place. What happens is that that person now becomes a child of God. That person now becomes a citizen of heaven. That person's eternal residence has changed. The heart surgery that takes place. When a person received the gospel and then you see that real change. So what we need to do as believers is to start seeing what's going on through the lens of the scriptures. We, we need to see that, oh, people are, yes, they're promoting evil and they're doing evil, but it's because they need a heart change, because they need the circumcision of the heart. It's because there's a heart issue. Therefore, we need to be ambassadors of Christ. The ambassadors will call to be. And we need to bring the gospel into the picture. Amen. Amen. So at this time, I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and lead. And, and then Matt could close us out in prayer. And if you need prayer after the service, please come up. Thank you for coming out. May God bless you. May God keep you. Thank you for listening to this teaching from God's Word. If you have any questions, would like to request prayer, or want more information about our church, how you can experience the love and hope of Jesus Christ in your life, please visit calvaryqueencreek.org.